Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Blue Lineage podcast series. On today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, some of the first electric blues players, in addition to a continued discussion about jump blues and some of the early R&B players, and actually add another radio DJ to the timeline. Uh, Once again, you can follow along with the timeline on bluelineage.com. Under the timeline section, um, it's starting to fill out a little bit here. Um, We're getting close to some of the uh, more current genres as we edge into R&B and rock and roll. And this episode, we can definitely start to see the the beginnings, the makings. You know, we've talked about how there's been bits, fragments um, from some of the early players that already kind of built into rock and roll and some of the later genres, but now we're really starting to get into those elements and it starts to get a little bit blurry as far as what is R&B, you know, when does it really shift into R&B and when does it shift into rock and roll. Um, but before we do that, um, I'm going to actually talk about the only terminology piece on the timeline in this episode, and that would be jump blues. And I already basically covered this last episode. Um, but the jump blues is what people referred to as what was R&B. You know, it's when you listen to uh, when you listen to like Louis Jordan um, on this podcast, we talk about Roy Brown. You can hear what that style is and why it's was used referred to as early R&B, but the jump blues is distinctly different. Um, it has like a swing style. Uh, it, it, uh, it's more of a swing style, a blues with a swing style, essentially. And um, as I said, it, it shifts into R&B over time. It kind of becomes a little bit indistinguishable. And one of the, the main reasons for this is that both of these kind of evolved uh, in the same way. And jump blues is really the result of urbanization and the migration of blues musicians from the rural areas to the cities. And now you have a lot of people from who have practiced in jazz disciplines or, you know, we talked about Boogie Woogie and all these guys are kind of coming together in cities and you're getting these new sounds. And at the time, Jump blues was one of those early sounds, one early results of urbanization uh, and the transfer of black people, not only um, to cities, but moving from the South to the North. Um, and at this point to the West Coast too, as we talked about, mentioned a little bit as in the second migration, um, you have a lot of people coming from uh, South to the West uh, before it was mostly uh, black people moving from the South to the north. Um, excuse me, one moment. Have a little dry mouth. Sorry about that. Um, so here we go. So that was the jump blues. And the only other part of the jump blues is, uh, like we talked about with Louis Jordan, um, Another big component contribution to the future of music, the jump blues was one of the first 
uh, music genres that really featured a smaller band before, specifically before, like the electronic technology and influence came to music when you just had everything was acoustic, you had horns, you had, you know, uh, very dominant singers who could kind of cut through uh, the horns without amplification, and you have, you know, unamplified string instruments, including a stand-up bass and, and guitar, uh, saxophone, um, those types of instruments. You had a big band format usually, so you could project to the audience. But once electronic technology kind of came to put into place, and just really just uh, amplification technology in general, including microphones, you saw it, it much more common to reduce uh, big band to combo bands, which is three to five uh, players, band members, versus you know, seven to 10 or more. Um, and that's something that we talked about with Louis Jordan as being a contribution there, one of the first big bands to make it big uh, using that format. Um, uh, it really contrasts to some of the other styles that are going on. You know, it has a swing sound, but another component of Jump Blues is that it was going to be at a faster tempo in comparison to like a slower kind of jazz sound like Nat King Cole, which that it, the way uh, it was played, it resembled what a Jump Blues would sound like, but at a much slower uh, sort of lounge, uh, low pace. So that's a jump blues um, for a definition. Uh, definition will be up on the website. Will be it's pretty clear, pretty concise. Uh, it when you listen to it, it it's uh, very jazzy, very jazz uh, oriented. But you'll be able to hear uh, frequently like a shuffle sort of pattern. Uh, you know, blue notes, some of the characteristics of blues, and then as you move forward, like with Roy, Roy Brown is a good example of someone who is really starting to cross over to more of an R&B sound. Louis Jordan was a very st distinct jump blues sound. And as Roy Brown uh, comes in the picture, you start to hear more of an R&B, but also uh, Roy Brown is in the contention for one of the first rock songs, rock and roll songs. So everything starts to get a little bit muddled at this point. Uh, and it becomes really interesting. The genre discussion becomes very interesting because we see this natural evolution in black music from blues, uh, jump blues, you know, getting R&B components. And we're starting to see, you, you look at today's genres and we're starting to see how everything kind of gets segmented over time, even though uh, the lineage is very clear. And that's, I think, something very unique about just trying to talk about black music where if you're talking about other genres like country or talking about jazz you know there are many different uh especially with jazz there are many different um subgenres or different types of jazz but still kind of is contained in one genre and you can definitely make the argument just because of the structure of jazz that everything kind of fits but it is interesting with black music i think at least to talk about as for how everything just kind of got you know, broken into so many genres when there's a 
clear, clear lineage. But at the same time, you know, when you're listening to music, you can be like, hey, this is, yeah, this is uh, R&B or this is funk. This is hip hop. This is rock, rock and roll. Uh, but it's an interesting discussion, something to talk about and how the industry kind of played played a role in that whole evolution and how everything was segmented. Anyways, though, let's get let's get to the artists. And our first artist on the list, as you can see on the timeline, 1943, moving right along, we have Muddy Waters. And Muddy Waters is another one of the musicians. I think we talked about Robert Johnson last episode. They talk about the blues. He's probably one of the most famous uh, artists that we've talked about so far despite having a, only a few records or recordings. Muddy Waters is another one of those big names. And what's interesting about Muddy Waters as it pertains to the timeline is that he, there's no song listed for him on the timeline. Um, when, you skip, when I put him up on the website or finish out his profile on the website, there probably will be sample songs. So definitely check him out because I think one of the things about Muddy Waters is that you know he has a, he has a big catalog and you know it's just good to go through a lot of different songs to capture his uh, capture what his sound sounds were but the reason that he doesn't have a song listed on the site or the timeline is because the big thing about muddy waters is was his move his you know, as part of the second migration, as we talked about, a ton of musicians and just black people in general were le leaving the South. This is the second generation, second migration, leaving the South, going North. More people were going West this time. And so with that became, uh, you know, as we said, collaborations and also you know, new audiences uh, into the city. Um, so a lot of those audiences, uh, you, you know, you could cater cater differently to them than what the, the current city music, current sounds were. And prior to that, you know, we saw some, many of these Delta Blues musicians travel uh, and go on tour, but they were bringing their Delta Blues sounds or some of the more country blues, some of those, you know, older styles of blues into the city. And it, it, it became pretty popular. You know, none of these musicians really blew up for their time, as we've kind of reviewed. Um, a lot of them, you know, a number of them had hits, um, but most of them who were the Delta Blue style uh, did not uh, blow up because their music was not really adapted uh, for the audience. They were kind of just seen as, a, you know, it was kind of a specialty music, a niche music. Um, didn't necessarily, you know, reach a wide band of of individuals to later on once people had kind of discovered like when we talked about uh um al lomax i think is his name al. um he was searching for robert johnson he was from the library of Cons congress library of congress and he couldn't find him he found out that robert johnson had passed away but he had heard you know some of his early recordings and that was kind of a, a similar story that we saw for for other mu blues musicians that people were hearing the blues 
you know, fascinated by it, interested in it, and they would go searching for somebody to play it, not necessarily, you know, an in a specific individual, but someone who was uh, proficient in this in this uh, art form. And that changed, you know, starting with Muddy Waters, as he moved to the city, he uh, he was originally a Delta Blues musician, but of course he really changed the sound, evolved the sound, and adapted it to something that fit for this new culture, this new uh, urban lifestyle that was developing in, in some of these cities. And a lot of Muddy Waters' songs are really uh, adapted versions of previously written or recorded songs from guys like Willie Dixon and Sunhouse. Uh, there's some other examples, but a lot of his big hits that you know, you know, he weren't written by him. They he adapted them, and so with the timeline, we tried to play pay as much homage as we could to some of the original songwriters and creators of the you know original music and sounds that were associated with the blues and these other genres. We try to include them as much as possible, and the timeline uh, to make sure they get credit. And you know, Muddy, you can't really argue with how great a songwriter Muddy Waters was himself, or how how much he contributed to the sound of the electric blues, and that that is what we wanted to capture more so than these songs they readapted that were in, were written by other people. You know, not to take anything away from it because those versions, you know, were successful for a reason. But really, uh, the reason he was included in the timeline was to really capture how his shift from being a Delta blues musician uh, from uh, Mississippi and moving to Chicago was uh, such a such a big thing at the time. So. Muddy Waters was, as I said, originally um, from Mississippi. He got his nickname from his grandmother because uh, he liked to play inside in puddles or some form of water or mud. Out, he liked to be outside, basically. Um, and so he got the name Muddy, and then Waters was added later. He took on that name, but his... His original name was McKinley Morganfield, and and it's as I said, he grew up in Mississippi, and he actually only was in school until the third grade. After the third grade, he ended up working, uh, helping out in the fields. Uh, his mother, part of it was because his mother had passed away when he was three years old, and he went to live with his grandmother. And so he only went to school for three years. And while, since he wasn't in school and was in the plantation uh, fields, he was able to you know, do some uh, activities that uh, some kids would obviously often, often, kids would often not be able to uh, partake in. He learned the harmonica and was able to focus a little bit on music. Uh, he actually didn't switch to guitar until he was 17 years old. Um, and then around that time, and a little bit later, as he was learning guitar, he 
also had an opportunity to run uh, Roadhouse for a short amount of time, which booked some, some, uh, you know, mid to small to mid acts. You know, blues musicians were coming through, and so they the Roadhouse put on performances. He also sold bootlegged alcohol. Uh, it's partially in in the times of prohibition, although I'm not sure what the prohibition dates were. So I'm not sure if it was a hard prohibition or if it was just selling bootlegged alcohol because it was harder to acquire. I'm not 100 percent. That's not my area of expertise, but I know he's those. That was a well-known activity. Um, people used to one of the I guess legends about Muddy Waters is him selling, you know, kind of running around with uh, bootleg alcohol, but wasn't really as played out as people uh, said it was. It it was more so that he was running around Roadhouse that also sold bootleg alcohol. Anyways, um, so one thing about Muddy Waters is if you listen to early Muddy Waters, uh, he's he's actually just playing Delta Blues, you know, no electric guitar. He's just playing, you know, the classic country blues, Delta Blues style. And, you know, of course he doesn't shift anything else until later, but his early style, uh, which he modeled after, right, Sunhouse and uh, Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson, of course. And because he was so proficient of this, Alan Lomax, who I just mentioned a little bit before, he was from the Library of Congress, he was looking for Robert Johnson. Well, he couldn't find him because Robert Johnson, you know, by the time he got down to uh, where Robert Johnson was supposed to be, he had passed away already. And he heard Muddy Waters play, or he heard that Muddy Waters could play the Delta jo- the Delta Blues in similar ways. And so he was uh, he sought out Muddy Waters and uh, did some recordings with him. Um. And that brought him some success. He got follow-up recordings with Alan Lomax uh, the next summer. And he uh, soon recorded his first, in 1950, he soon recorded his first song called Rolling Stone. Uh, And that is important because the Rolling Stones named themselves after this song and so during this time he continued to play in small venues he was still uh, in the south generally uh, he kind of you know developing a song his sound um, and he also still was working uh, on the plantation as a sharecropper and finally this lifestyle was only going to get him so far. So he decided to move to Chicago, uh, like many others decided at that time, but especially for a musician and a musician who wanted to accomplish the things that he wanted to accomplish. Uh, Chicago was a good destination for him. That's where uh, that was kind of the center of one of the main centers of new music at the time, uh, especially in the North. So, once he gets to Chicago, he continues to work some odd jobs. You know, remember, he only has a third grade education, so that's going to limit 
certain, you know, his ability to do certain jobs. He never learned how to read or write. And while he was doing these odd jobs, he would perform, uh, work as a sideman at uh, some Chicago clubs in the South Side. And one thing about these urban clubs is that, you know, Muddy Waters actually has a booming voice, a pretty loud voice, which is a little bit, it's not unique um, for a musician at that time. But as we get into some of these layered musicians, especially as I was talking about before, about shifting from big bands to smaller bands, one of the things was um, the ability to amplify vocals. And, uh, you know, you back in the day, either you didn't have a microphone or microphone technology was not what it was, you know, certainly not what it was as it is today. So, you know, you needed to have that voice that just naturally projects. Uh, that was kind of a requirement. And as we get later, go later into the timeline, talk about some of these later artists, uh, the microphone really allows people to, musicians that don't naturally have that projection or loud voice to, you know, successfully record songs uh, and record in a live atmosphere, especially just because, you know, their voice is that amplified. But the sound of the clubs still was pretty rowdy, and and, uh, and so that was one of the reasons that he let, that led him to switch to electric guitar. I mean, by the time he switches to electric gu guitar, it was already kind of, you know, musicians were already doing it. Um, he was one of the first musicians that became well-known and created hits with it and really, you know, ran with it and created his own style. Uh, but that, uh, that amplified guitar plus his naturally, you know, loud booming voice amplified, you know, really uh, was a core feature of his sound. It really worked out nice because now he has a amplified guitar. You know, if, if you have a naturally booming voice, you're in loud clubs so your voice is amplified, but your guitar is not necessarily amplified like your voice. So now your voice is cutting through, but your guitar is. So you would you would think uh, as a musician, if that's the case, you might, you know, sing or perform differently, just because you know you want your guitar parts, you want the other parts of the song to come out, and so the combination of this was was definitely a, a huge component of the sound and and really worked out nicely. Um, so he, he kept uh, recording at the clubs. He also got signed by Aristocrat Records, which later became a well-known uh, recording company, Chess Records. And he basically recorded for Chess Records for, you know, that was basically his recording company for the longest time. And, and uh, one of the things about Muddy Waters' sound and style is when you listen to him, his his electric blues really just sounds like Delta blues electrified. Um, you know, it's a little bit contrasting to some of the later electric blues artists who, you know, were really reshaping blues into something new, a new sound, uh, using 
some of the abilities and different attributes of the electric guitar to you know, create different sounds or different styles within the electric blues. But Muddy Waters, especially uh, early on, you, you know, you can you can you can tell that he's just kind of playing guitar, uh, electric guitar, as almost as if it was an acoustic guitar with some you know some key differences. Uh, if you listen to if you listen to a song like um, Honey Bee, you know he's I don't remember if on the studio recording if he uses a slide or not, but I believe that he's he's not at least in some of the recordings he's not using a slide, and he's sort of just quickly sliding his finger, you know, um, um, you know, up up the uh, neck as if. It was a slide, but since it's amplified, you don't necessarily need a slide in the same way that you would on an acoustic guitar. So he's kind of simulating a slide, um, but it's not. It's just an electric guitar. So you know he's he's sort of adapting a little bit. You'll hear some. I think he doesn't really bend notes that much. Uh, you know that's definitely something that comes. The art of uh, string bending is something that's definitely more heavily utilized later. And it's not something that was overly utilized with um, definitely not Delta Blues. You know, that's kind of where the slide came in. Um, and then bending in a lot of ways mimics uh, that sort of seamless, um, um, you know, uh, note hitting higher notes without, you know, moving shifting um, frets or positions and it, it kind of keeps that uh, continuous sound which uh, you know if you don't have a slide with an acoustic guitar it does not quite work out that like that way you can uh, bend obviously on an acoustic guitar but it's, uh, it's definitely different and so you don't really hear much of that with Mighty Waters especially early and you never really it doesn't really ever become a prolific uh, string bender. It's not, you know, not many of the early electric guitars were, you know, huge string benders. But you, there are a couple who definitely start to implement that in their music. And he still did play uh, with a slide at times, and so it really does sound kind of have a country blues sort of sound on electric guitar. And and that's kind of how it uh, continued to. That's kind of how it continued to uh, stay throughout his um, his career. But what he did create is a you know a good template that a lot of other artists, of course, uh, emulated or he influenced many of many other artists because you know regardless of of it being a sort of electrified delta blues it was still a you know completely different sound than you know what what had been uh, occurring before you know electrified blues you know if you listen to muddy waters if you listen to any of the previous delta blues musicians it's still a you know very different sound even though you know he's taking a lot of styles and just kind of 
moving them over, but he definitely, you know, did work to make sure it, it worked out and adapted a sound that worked uh, in the electric blues sort of realm. Um, so by the, the late 1950s, uh, he had gained interna international uh, interest and recognition, and so he was able to tour England. Um, he played you know, a lot of big venues and festivals in the U.S. and uh, in, in England. Um, and of course, one of the thing, things about that is with a lot of these, especially now in the electric blues uh, time period, a lot of the artists that we know of, I talked about a little bit um, before with um, um, no, I can't really think today. Um, Yes, Champion Jack Dupree. Okay. We talked about uh, before with Champion Jack Dupree and how he went over to Europe and was successful there and played with you know, a number of the artists that we associate with the British Invasion. Uh, the Beatles uh, opened for him. Um, he had encounters with Eric Clapton. Uh, I don't remember who else. But, you know, it was starting to become a pattern. We'll talk about it again with uh, some later artists, but you know the England parts of Europe were uh, definitely really taking in the blues, and of course that sound returns back to the U.S. later as what people will refer to as a British invasion of you know rock and roll, blues rock. So. Muddy Waters uh, obviously influenced a number of musicians, um, and part of that was, you know, in his bands contained uh, quite a few pretty well-known musicians who had solo careers uh, simultaneously or later on, um, including Otis Spann, Jimmy Roder Rogers, Little Walter, uh, Junior Wells, James Cotton, and so his and Buddy Guy. Is another one that we've that we know of, uh, pretty well known. Um, my buddy guy, you know, still alive. So if you haven't seen him, uh, he's one of the few people that I will mention uh, while talking about the timeline who's still alive. Well, in the blues era, obviously later down the road, there's a number of people who are still alive and performing, but but not that many. Um, so that kind of encompasses uh, Muddy Waters um, as far as it's relevant to the timeline. I don't really get into a whole lot of his individual songs, um, but once again, you know, definitely check out Muddy Waters, listen to his sound, you know, find your, you know, your favorite songs by him because, you know, he's a pretty extensive catalog, um, you know, I definitely very important to the evolution of music, American music, uh, black music, blues, rock and roll, you know, covers. It's, uh, it's definitely one of those um, root musics that uh, people uh, will pull from. 
for pulled from for a long time. Um, that leads us to our next artist. Uh, if you look on the timeline, Louis Jordan is listed again. He's listed multiple times on the timeline uh, for different songs. And as we talked about last episode, you know, that little span of success uh, for that, for uh, Louis Jordan and his band was, uh, you know, one of the most successful spans for any band in music history. So we see him a few more times, but I'm not going to talk about him again. Um, the next person on the timeline is another DJ, uh, our second DJ on the timeline. The first was Jack Cooper, and we'll mention him a little bit while I'm talking about this individual, Al Benson. Um, so Al Benson, uh, also known as Arthur Bernard Leaner, he grew up also in Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, and when he was younger, he performed with his family band. Um, he performed a little bit in Black Vaudeville. And he also produced shows. So he had some early exposure to music and entertainment. Um, in the 1920s, he moved to Chicago. And he mostly lived in Chicago, except for part of the Great Depression. He did go back to the Mississippi area. But generally, he was, you know, after, at that point, he lived in Chicago, and he had a number of jobs. He uh, worked as a probation officer. He worked as a railroad cook, a preacher, and he worked as a interviewer for the Works Progress Administration, which, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the Works Progress Administration was part of the, the New Deal that was um, put into place by FDR uh, following the Great Depression to, you know, create jobs. It was, it is the um, portion of that bill that uh, was responsible for like uh, rebuilding or enhancing America's uh, infrastructure, roadways and whatnot. And so, you know, Benson was. I guess in some ways an early social worker or a, one of the early administrations and social services in the country. So um, that is a little bit interesting, I suppose. Um, so he started his, his uh, career under the name Reverend Arthur Leaner. As I just mentioned, he worked as a preacher and he uh, would broadcast he had 15 minute broadcasts initially from his church um, but the problem was that uh, many of the nearby store uh, it's not store station owners um, were complaining about him advertising because he would advertise for his radio station uh, to you know help fund it and at the time you know obviously this is during these times, there was racial tensions and a lot of stuff going on, so it's hard to know, you know, what the truth was and how much, you know, it was just a situation of the times as far as um, how people viewed how religious activities should be 
how how it should take place. And in this case, they were saying, you know, you know, a religious broadcast should not have advertising, you know, because it could, you know, it shouldn't have uh, private interest uh, or commercial interests, you know, mixed in with, you know, a religious broadcast. It's kind of like the idea behind the separation of church and state. Um, you know, the kind of keeping integrity, you know, want to keep religious in integrity for a religious broadcast. So I don't know how much, um, where that was coming from, but regardless, Al Benson, he, uh, switched his name to Al Ben, sorry, Reverend Arthur Lehner switched his name to Al Benson and he became a commercial DJ. He started working for, for a station. So, so, I mean, another component going back to this religious broadcast is at this point, you know, he's essentially has a church and he has, he's using his church as a radio station. And so now what has happened is he no longer owns a radio station for this point, And now he's working for radio station owners. So, you know, there's definitely other commercial incentives uh, for him not to, uh, you know, have his church radio station, but, I don't know. You know, I don't, I have never seen any other information about the details surrounding that, that uh, whole situation. So if you have some knowledge about it, definitely let me know. Um, so he switched his name to Al Benson. He's a commercial DJ. Uh, he was working for multiple radio stations in Chicago. Uh, by 1948, he was uh, broadcasting, you know, 10 hours uh, per, per week on various uh, stations, um, and, you know, he had some creative control, which was big for uh, black DJs at the time, and one of the things that I talked about with Jack L. Cooper, which, you know, he was really the first black DJ, um, and eventually, uh, black, uh, creative, uh, program radio programmer so he was able to kind of shift the radio content uh, during that time from kind of uh, you know it was number one uh, you know music was you didn't hear a lot of um, like music associated with the black community like jazz or gospel so Jack o. Cooper helped kind of shift that and put that into the into the radio space and he also changed the programming on the radio from you know a lot of programming was made at the expense of black people um, you know a lot of black caricatures and you know just not um, not positive things about black people or not uh, positive things about black culture. So Jack L. Cooper was able to shift that and include um, that in the in in radio. Um, and so when L. Benson comes along, you know, it's there's still a lot of the same stuff going on. Uh, Jack L. Cooper also broadcasted in Chicago. Um, and so a lot of the stuff was still going on though, and. So he, he did some of the same things as far as providing a different perspective. He, uh, 
you know, one of the main differences, though, was when Jack L. Cooper came along, it was really much earlier, at least when he started, it was much earlier in, you know, urban life for the black community. You know, there was a lot of people who were, there was not as many people who had moved uh, to the city. So now at this point, there's even a greater demand for, uh, you know, different, you know, different types of radio stations and radio stations that include, you know, all these new uh, black residents, uh, in this case, Chicago, um, who are, who are, um, who are new to the area and are, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of, you know, people getting into different industries, uh, you know, people, you know, at this point, people are, <coughs> black people are coming, becoming a much more significant portion of the population. So as we talked about with with Muddy Waters, we're talking about black clubs on the South Side, you know, black-owned clubs. And so there's just, you know, businesses. There's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a, different, it's a different industry or a different commercial uh, economy than it was when Jack Cooper uh, came to Chicago at the time. I mean, he was around for quite a while. So, you know, there's a point where um, they overlap, I believe. Um, but one of the main criticisms that I talked about with with uh, Jack L. Cooper is that he, you know, he put jazz on the radio, he put gospel on the radio, but you know, just like with a lot of the other groundbreaking musicians that we ta I talked about, you know, when you talk about Mommy Smith or W. C. Handy, you know, when you're put into these positions where you're trying to add a new sound or a new form of art or entertainment into a space, um, you know, you can kind of get wrapped up in, in, you know, a kind of a singular ideology or a mission um, as far as what you're, what you're trying to accomplish. Um, in the case of W.C. Handy, you know, he wanted to you know, become successful, a successful black musician in a time where, you know, that just wasn't really happening. Um, and so, especially for certain genres of music. And so he, you know, of course, took the blues and, you know, made his interpretation of it, kind of turned into like a little bit of a ragtime song. And during the process of his career, you know, he had had to uh, be part of minstrel shows. He had to do this and that. That was not really, you know, great for you know for himself to have to go through you know, those sort of uh, blackface and you know entertainment that was pretty demeaning to black culture. You know, he kind of had to you know make a decision, make a sacrifice, and you know decide that oh this is my mission and this is what I want to do. Um, with Jack L. Cooper, it was a little bit different. Um, he didn't really have to. He did have to early in early radio. He had to kind of carry out uh, skits and plays that were not uh, good for black culture. Well, not I don't want to say not good. I mean they weren't good, but um, they were not respectful or um, positive um, for black culture, or black people. So, but then when he uh, got the opportunity to create his own programming, he really wanted to illuminate that black people, you know, black culture was respectable, 
Um, there was a black middle class that was growing in the city. He wanted to appeal to them. He wanted to show that, you know, black people can be, uh, you know, civilized and, you know, have a uh, speak eloquently. And so in the process of that, you know, he played gospel and jazz, but he didn't really play the blues. He didn't really play, you know, certain certain jazz, but most jazz he did play. Um, he didn't really play, you know, a lot of these other up-and-coming genres, which would have been like the jump blues or like early R&B. Some of these, some of these styles at the time, of course, were viewed as, you know, too raunchy, um, you know, lyrically just inappropriate, uh, you know, promoting these unholy, you know, notions, uh, you know, against the church. Um, a lot of these type of types of things and so you know in the process of trying to promote black culture he he alienated uh, another a number of of people and um and you know he was a big community guy that was his focus as i said you know when you have to go through all this you you might develop a singular mission you might not be trying to be all-encompassing you're really trying to almost prove to uh, the people who were uh, holding you back or said, you know, this and that, um, said disparaging things about black people or you, you know, as part of, um, as black, part of black culture and you, you know, you're trying to prove them wrong. Um, you know, I, you know, he was a great community person. He gave back to the community. He did a lot of great things. So as I said in the episode, you know, not to take anything away from Jacko Cooper, but that, you know, is a criticism and, you know, it's, it's valid to a certain extent. Um, because, you know, there is, a you know, alienating a, a large part of the population, especially at that time and, um, a, you know, removing a portion of, you know, a pretty staple portion of black culture, you know, art forms that we're talking about the struggles and, uh, the life, the livelihood, um, and, and the experience of black people at the time was, you know, it was, it was important to get out there. But, you know, it's understandable and, you know, one person can only do so much. So what was, so what Al Benson comes in and, do, and does, even though he is um, part of the church, you know, and that was one of the things for Jacko Cooper and a lot of people, you know, a lot of these genres were a little bit raunchy and not, well, at least at that time. If you read the lyrics in today's, you know, compared to today's uh, modern music, uh, it seems pretty mild, but... But nonetheless, you know, it's seen as, seen as countercultural and inappropriate in a lot of ways. But Al Benson, you know, just even though he's a reverend, you know, he can see, um, he can see, you know, what the music is. He can see the music for what it is, and you know, see past, saw past that. He included a lot of the songs, blues songs, uh, early R&B, you know, a lot of these genres that were becoming popular in the city. Um, that weren't played before. So for a lot of people, for black and white audiences, they were for the first time uh, hearing some of these um, some of these uh, genres or songs. And you know, that was big. And that was a you know, huge contributor to just overall popularity of the current development of music, but also giving some respects to some of the you know, Delta Blues guys and country blues guys of before. So it was a, a pretty big deal. Um, and another thing about Al Benson is he had more of, um, 
he had more of like a uh, like a down home uh, personality or way of talking um, in compared in comparison to um, Dak L. Cooper or other DJs at the time, and so he appealed once again to a lot of people who are just moving in the city, you know, who weren't familiar with the city life, city ways, uh, and you know, even people who weren't, you know, when you have that kind of, uh, you know, when when someone seems like they're being themselves and uh, coming from a place of familiarity, you know, I think that that goes a long way, and that was something that. You know, some of it was time. You know, as I said before, Jack O. Cooper. You know, you have to, to some degree, um, adapt to the times. And you know, Al Benson is coming; he's getting a start later on, so a lot of this is more acceptable. But um, either way, you know, it was a it was a big thing, and it's a it's a good move. Um, so Al Benson, you know, continued to do his thing. Um, for a while into the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and around then, uh, unfortunately, there are a few things. Um, one of the things is that a lot of the station managers um, had started to shift to a more prescribed uh, song list. So, you know, DJs didn't really have the freedom to play what they wanted to. And part of that, though, was because uh, it was discovered that um, DJs had, it was found out that DJs or recording companies were paying DJs off to play sh- certain records. And I mean, I'm not, I don't want to say that L. Benson was part of this, but that was just, uh, you know, kind of widespread thing that happened. And so DJs just lost a lot of uh, choice on what was played and Another thing was, you know, a lot of the uh, advertising models were shifting. And so um, that was another thing that was lost um, for DJs because Al Benson was a very well-known, prolific advertiser. Uh, He was really good at getting, putting products out there and and, uh, getting stuff, uh, you know, bought and sold. And so eventually he uh, faded away a little bit as far as popularity, but he continued to DJ for you know, for a while, for a long time. But that was kind of the the reason for his uh, slow decline. Um, and that was something that was really happening across the board um, with radios at radios as they shifted to a more commercial format. Um, we'll talk about it a little bit more when we talk about, I believe we have two more DJs on the list um, that we'll talk about. I think we talk about both of them in the next episode, so we'll get into radio a little bit more. Um, next on the list is a uh, very uh, well-known singer, at least during his time, um, and that is Roy Brown. He's also, uh, as I mentioned a little bit earlier in this episode, he's also the contender for having made one of the first rock and roll songs ever. Uh, that song is Good Rocking Tonight. And it may sound familiar for multiple reasons. Uh, I'll mention it a little bit later, uh, but multiple artists 
performed the song and each of them experienced their own level of, of success uh, for recording the song. Uh, but he's Roy Brown is uh, originally from Louisiana. Um, he got to start singing in churches. And when he, as a young adult, he moved to LA. Um, he wanted to be a, try to be a boxer at first. And then, uh, and then uh, when that didn't work out, he actually went back to LA for a period of time and, you know, tried to, to become a singer. Um, so he found his first success actually in Texas and his first sec success was uh, Good Rocking Tonight is one of his, you know, his first hit. And what had happened with that song is he had written the song and he was his friend and also uh, actually is one of his um, his idols was Winoni Harris. And so he actually tried to give the song to, to Winoni Harris first um, before recording it itself. And, you know, Winoni Harris didn't want it at the time. And so he recorded it and it was a big hit uh, and potentially the rock and, first rock and roll song. And then after that, Winoni Harris recorded a version. And so, I mean, there's a debate. Part of the debate, debate is, you know, is it the first rock and roll song ever? You know, that's like a, if you're not already familiar, there's, you know, you can, there's quite a debate. There's like a number of songs that people have in the running. Um, on this timeline, it would be, uh, it would probably be the first one. Um, but, you know, the timeline is not necessarily structured to uh, to discover the first rock and roll song. But this is the first contender that is on our list. Um, I, as I remember, I mentioned uh, in another episode, uh, Saturday Night Saturday Night Fish Fry um, is another song that people talk about because of the overdriven guitar, and they use the word rocking, which obviously this song also uses rocking. And that came out um, a couple of years later, and I talked about that as being an early contender for rock and roll. So I think, depending on what you think when you listen to this song, you know, that could eliminate that as a contender. But um, I don't think this timeline is necessarily uh, for uh, determining the aspect. We definitely don't have enough of the uh, early rock and roll songs to, to kind of try to figure it out. But, you know, if there's any input, thoughts about it, um, I'm definitely, you know, definitely open to, uh, to the debate. I personally don't, you know, I don't have a favorite for which one should be known as the first, but I think this is a good, good contender. Um, you know, it's good rocking tonight. It sounds like it would be a rock and roll song, but part of the debate is actually between Roy Brown's and Winoni Harris's, uh, versions because Roy Brown's, well, so Winoni Harris's is a little bit more upbeat. It's a little bit more, I, I guess, uh, intense um, in comparison. And then, um, excuse me. And then, um, we'll talk about the last version in a second. Um, one of the interesting things about Good Rocky Tonight is 
that it has a beat that would later be known as a diddly beat. Um, and the diddly beat was actually kind of big for more so for funk than anything. And then later hip hop. Um, but it was, you know, Bo Diddley was uh, known in the rock and roll and blues era. And the diddly beat actually has a West African, um, a West African connection. And so it's interesting just because this is, you know, present, you know, it's a, it's, it's present in other genres. It was present in jazz. Um, but, um, one of the things that when we get to Bo Diddley on the timeline is, you know, it's, it was a big deal when that became a portion of, uh, of this side of, uh, the lineage in the blues, blues lineage, uh, R&B, rock and roll, and funk, and so it's interesting that it's kind of, it's introduced, uh, earlier in the timeline and becomes a part of rock and roll, um, Um, and you know, and another thing about the song is just based on the time it was recorded, it would have been released still as race music, as we talked about before, uh, early music that was made by black people, uh, and deemed for black people was called race music. Um, not with the exception of jazz, um, so it would have been released as race music, but this was right near the crossover when uh, record, uh, the charts and record companies started to shift their, their labeling to R&B. And so it would have been released as a race record, but it would have hit the charts as an R&B hit. So a little interesting. Um, we'll talk about uh, the charts and whatnot a little bit more in, I think it's next episode. Yeah, because that's when we'll talk about the transition from race music to R&B a little bit more. So his version uh, was uh, successful. Winoni Harris's version, maybe a little bit more rock and roll, but also successful, even more successful. Um, but neither was um, as famous or as successful as Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley recorded his i'm not sure when it was but um it became a like a gold it went gold gold selling al album or whatever whatever it's uh whatever it would be called but super successful um and this is a that's a trend that happens especially now uh well not now but now in the timeline the 1950s 1960s um it happened definitely happened earlier also but just artists re-recording a more um, culturally appropriate or uh, a rate more radio friendly you know you know just basically uh sometimes some people might say watered down alternate version um there are this happened numerous times where these type of versions were re-recorded and then became more successful because they were released into a, you know, into a different genre. They would be released on the pop charts 
or I mean the rock and roll charts don't really exist until much later um, and then of course later on um, the charts became a little bit less race based of course right now we're moving from race to shifting from race to R&B charts so you see artists later on you know not just black artists some white artists um, entering those charts but I mean it, stay, it stays the racial lines stay pretty uh, firm generally speaking um, uh, you know for a long time and so but that was common you know re-records and the other artists who record it and have the more um, radio friendly version become uh, more successful and have a, a bigger a bigger hit than their original recording artist and often the original recording artists, one of the reasons that some of these artists are included in the timeline and not well known was because of just that uh, people recording more successful music, more successful versions of their music without necessarily giving the credit or even the credit is due, you know, the artist is not adequately compensated or, you know, just it's just a product of the times in which, you know, you can you can say what you want, but, you know, what's done has been done. You know, you've created a essentially copied their music and made a more popular version of it. And, you know, some people will say that's fair. You know, I don't know. It's a it's definitely a, a discussion to be had. Um, Roy Brown's biggest hit, most well-known hit was Hard Luck Blues, um, which is. It's definitely a, a, a slow blues song. Um, so it's a little bit of a departure from what, you know, most of his songs were more of like a jump blues, uh, early R&B style, you know, kind of a rock and roll. But uh, Harlick Blues was, uh, and which is his most famous song, was definitely a, a blues hit and it was released in 1950 and it re reached number one. So that's, it's kind of interesting. Um, you know, he was known for um, his somewhat scandalous lyrics. He was, you know, he has really unique voice. If you ever listen, haven't listened to Roy Brown, definitely check him, check him out because he has a very interesting voice. Um, his lyrics for that time were seen as a little bit more scandalous, a little bit, I won't even say raunchy because, you know, if you look at him, it's hard to, it can be a little bit hard. You can see how they're a little bit suggestive in some situations, but it's it's kind of hard to exactly see where the controversy would come in. But that was, you know, he was a big influence on guys like Elvis, obviously, you know, he uh, re-recorded one of his songs and, but, you know, we were entering into that, into that era where, you know, a lot of these artists are trying to, but styles are trending towards a the pop genre. You'll see a lot of pop artists start to mimic and uh, borrow or uh, yeah emulate, as I was just kind of saying. Uh, these styles and these lyrics and the songs all together. In some cases, uh, you know, of course, with Elvis, you know, Roy Brown is one. You know, another one that people will talk about is. Jackie Wilson, um, as far as, you know, where he got a lot of his, per where he potentially got a lot of his influence from, um, among other places. Um, and so basically within that time period, 1947, 1952, he had another uh, number of other hits. That was kind of his, definitely the peak of his career. 
and he kept touring after that, but, you know, that was kind of the peak of his success. You know, we didn't really see a whole lot um, after that. And that's Roy Brown, you know, great singer. You know, he definitely contributed to, I think, in a similar way to the way Louis Jordan did, except, you know, not definitely not as prolific as far as charting and uh, recording success, you know, in the commercial space. But uh, as far as his style and what he brought to light, um, definitely contributed in the moving forward of music. Because, you know, with a lot of these artists, especially these singers, you know, Louis Jordan was a saxophone player. But I think a lot of it was, for him, was curating his band. And, you know, a lot of these backup bands, you know, they're not going to see the same success as their, their lead main guy. And so a lot of these guys may only play with... Uh, with Louis, Louis Jordan, Louis Jordan, the Timpany Five, the Timpany Five might only play with Louis Jordan, but there's a good chance that before and after, you know, they, you know, had played and, you know, were playing in other disciplines like jazz or other blues bands or guys who were just doing different stuff. And, and as I said before, the urbanization um, aspect, you know, people coming into these urban spaces and people collaborating in ways they haven't done before, you know, kind of all comes together to create these new sounds, like with Louis Jordan, as I briefly mentioned, I think last time, is that all his songs are not necessarily written by him. Um, but you know, doesn't matter because they they put them out and they were su super successful. But I think a lot of it is the you know the whole collaboration of the band versus someone like a you know Muddy Waters who's kind of coming up this way, you know, taking a uh, genre of music or a style of music that was a lot more um, individual um, in some ways um, and you know re kind of recreating that sound maybe not the song itself but recreating the sound and uh, and turning that into something you know seemingly completely different um, versus uh, I think you know the Louis Jordans and people like that were taking sounds that were maybe already out there but turning into their own, but most importantly, just the popularity and the prolific success that they had really got that sound out there. And, you know, whatever, however they were influenced, however they collaborated to create the sounds, now was really out there. And people were able to take that sound and, you know, and, you know, make more, make their own styles, emulate that, you know, conti continue to spread the message. Because that was, you know, during this time between the 1950s and 1960s, you know, it was just a huge explosion. Of music it's uh you know it's pretty dramatic and you know when when you're talking about city, cities we're also including the djs like al benson or djs everywhere but most importantly these djs who are playing these new genres of music and so you're having not only are you having the musicians and people coming to the cities and being interact but now you're having these radio stations you know broadcasting to a you know a, a denser larger population of people so every, you know there's more people are getting involved uh, pretty rapidly and getting exposed to these sounds so not to take anything away from these guys like uh you know definitely not louis jordan you know th it's not really disputable you know the con contribution that these guys have uh and and gals have given um the timeline but you know it's a little bit different like with like roy brown um in some in a similar way you know he was a singer you know, a lot of these guys are identifying identifying bandmates um, to some extent. You know, they are creating the sound. I think with Good Rockin' Tonight, obviously he, he wrote the lyrics, 
and he hummed the song to people. So he had like a flow uh, and a general melody. Um, but how much uh, Roy Brown actually designed the sounds, I think a lot of that would go to the, to the bands. And I think some of the backup bands and the uh, the guys who are contributing to the to this might be left out, but are a huge portion of uh, of moving um, the you know moving music forward. And so, you know, Roy Brown important, but I think it's important to also take that into consideration. Um, but uh, great singer, if you ever like I said, definitely check him out if you haven't heard him before. You know, really great voice, a really good uh, songwriter. Um, and then that'll take us to our last individual on the timeline. And we got another electric blues guy, and that is T-Bone Walker. And T-Bone Walker, another very famous individual, um, especially for blues. Uh, he is from Texas. Uh, his his family moved to Dallas uh, when his mother uh, moved to escape um, a strict religious family, and his dad was also not trying to work in the fields anymore, trying to get out of plantation work. Um, you know, this is in the early 1900s. So, uh, T T Bone Walker, um, early on, one of his first sort of jobs. I mean, he was a kid at the time. But he was a guide for Blind Lemon jo Jefferson, who I believe I briefly mentioned um, when we were talking about some of the other blues artists, probably you know, around maybe Charlie Patton or somewhere around that time period. And um, so Blind Lemon Jeff Jefferson was a, a well-known blues musician, but he was, as um, kind of implied, he was blind, and so he needed a guide. And when he came to the city, T-Bone Walker would help him out and uh, he would try to collect tips um, in the process. Um, another musical influ influence for him when he was a kid was his father uh, played in a uh, string band. Um, it was called the Dallas String Band. And so Walker had the opportunity to learn you know, a variety of different string in instruments um, his first guitar was actually a cigar box guitar, and um, I I think I've I, I don't remember if I've mentioned what a cigar box guitar is on on the show before, but it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just a cigar box, which you know I don't even know you know if people really know what that is anymore. But it's you know kind of a you know it's kind of like a medium sized box. I don't know what you know I don't know what to compare it to. But um, not a huge box, and you know, obviously, you would take the top off, and you would string a a neck to it, and then you would, uh, well, you attach like a little neck, and you would take some strings, wire in this case, and you would you know nail the wire to the across the top of the box, so you could play it like a guitar. Um, and so he mostly taught himself to play guitar uh, reportedly. Um, later on, he said he had some he had some other uh, sort of odd performing acts as he went along. He one job was he performed uh, in Doctor Breeding's medicine show. Uh, he was a tap dancer, 
uh, during that time actually and I mean I don't know if anyone if people are familiar with what medicine shows are but uh, back in the day I'm not familiar with doctor breeding so I've never been able to find anything about that specific medicine show but medicine shows were not uh, so you know relatively speaking you know biomedicine is you know fairly new science you know in the grand scheme of things and so back in the day you know you would have these uh medical professionals for those of you listening i keep, I keep forgetting that some people are only listening so this is not the first time i've done quotes on this episode so hopefully you can tell in, the, in my by my voice that i am making quotes but right now i'm quoting you know medical professionals uh would put on medicine shows and these medicine shows were not um i would say they're they were not necessarily about medicine or six so you know a lot of these medicine shows were definitely what people they were selling what people referred to as snake oil so essentially unproven medical remedies um Another thing to keep in mind is that part of this is during the prohibition. And so a lot of these medicines that they were selling, quotes again, medicines, um, they happen to be highly, have high percentages, very high percentages of alcohol in them. So, you know, and but they weren't alcohol, they were medicine, so it was okay. They also have often contained high levels of other types of, uh, you know, drugs, like, uh, you know, they'd be like, have stimulants, they would have high amounts of, uh, like, opium or an opiate, um, that, that type of stuff, and so, perhaps, you know, they did help with certain medical ailments, but, um, I think, the general consensus or well-accepted consensus is that the medicine shows were not really about medicine. They're about selling, you know, various tinctures and potions that had various properties uh, to individuals. Um, and a huge component of it, of it was just considering the times that, you know, these were, you know, sort of live traveling shows, performances, and you would have entertainers. Um, some of them, unfortunately, did... Uh, contain blackface performances i don't like i said i don't know about dr breeding's medicine show that's why you know one of the reasons i wanted to look it up because i know uh just when we're talking about minstrel shows and vaudeville and all these different forms of entertainment a lot of them contain that at the time so i wasn't sure and a lot of our other people we've mentioned on these timelines at some point encountered you know blackface performances or different forms of entertainment where that was part of the show um, but anyway, medicine shows are interesting, a little bit of an interesting uh, thing, if you ever want to look it up, them up, if you're not already familiar, uh, kind of an interesting phenomenon for those times. Um, another, he also, so People and Walker also played with Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong early on um, in his career uh, for short gigs. Um, eventually he moved to L.A. and... After moving to L.A. Uh, is when he really started to record a little bit more um, uh, semi-professionally. Uh, he recorded his first song with Les Height called the T-Bone Blues in 1939, which became 
his uh, one of his first uh, successful recordings, um, even though it was an independent. And another thing about the first recording about the T-Bone Blues is that he was not playing guitar on the original recording. Um, but it is one of the first songs that um, you can point out that people will recognize him for. Um, but T-Bone Walker was, uh, I think he actually took on the electric guitar before Muddy Waters. Um, he start, I think he started playing electric guitar at the very end of the 1930s, late 1930s, maybe mid-1930s. Um, and um, so he was huge in shaping electric electric blues. Um, you know, in comparison to Muddy Waters, he definitely owned it. Um, he definitely adapted it to styles that would be consistent with, like, the West Coast blues. Um, and... So he, you know, he was playing like a, a more contemporary sound that was more consistent with some of the other artists, uh, what younger artists were shifting to, and he definitely helped shape that. Um, in addition to being a skilled uh, guitarist and singer, he was also a very good showman, uh, similar to. Charlie Patton, when I talked about him uh, a while back, I think episode two maybe. Um, you know, Charlie Patton was known for a lot of his different gimmicks and showman tricks, and T-Bone Walker played uh, or did a lot of the same things and other things. He uh, was known for playing his behind his head while doing the splits. Uh, he would play the guitar with his teeth. Um, you know, it's, he was definitely a, that was definitely a component of his of his uh, of his performance. And outside of Charlie Patton, I think he probably up until this point is probably the most well known for that. A lot of people will look at T Bone Walker as one of the early people who did that. But then you know, a lot of people don't know that Charlie Patton was famous for that. I think T Bone Walker might be more widely known for those type of. Uh, performance showman type acts uh, at least to this point in the timeline um and uh you know he was a very good guitarist though um you don't want to you don't want to um uh overshadow his guitar uh playing ability with uh, the showman pieces he uh had a very unique style of rhythm and tempo changes um you know he definitely made constructed his own sound and I think it was very key for electric blues and electric guitar because you know all of a sudden with electric guitar um, the guitar really becomes more capable of becoming a solo instrument so we were able to allow these young musicians including T-Bone Walker were really working on crafting their own styles and bring you know different uh, different approaches to music in a, in a much different way than uh than these Delta Blues guys who are really worried about, a lot of these guys are really worried about uh, rhythm, rhythm guitar and a lot less about maybe being able to focus on some some lead aspects or some solo aspects. Because, you know, of course, electric guitar really completely changes that even though, um, you know, we're not necessarily talking about, you know, over-driven guitar or a lot of gain where you're, you know, where you have like these 
solos that we would associate with rock and roll. But even, you know, if you listen to, you know, early Muddy Waters, um, for example, you know, even that amplification, you know, that little bit of a uh, drive that, uh, at amp that amps had at the time or, um, you know, even that was enough to give a pretty significant, um, you know, electric guitar sound. It's, it's definitely not the same as just um, using a clean tone as what people would might refer to it today. Is a clean tone is kind of like a almost like an electric uh, acoustic uh, sound, except it's clearly an electric guitar. Um, but you don't get that overdrive. You just it's just gonna sound like a kind of like a when people play acoustic guitar into a microphone is you know it's not exactly the same but that would be the comparison whereas some of these early guitars just because of the the style of the pickups and the amplification you almost they almost jumped into a little bit of a drive sound so you know that you definitely could um clearly solo um and have a clearly have a solo presence and add you know much more lead and um individuality into your into your song, especially if you had a second guitarist there to play rhythm. Um, so in 1947, he recorded uh, probably his most famous hit, Call It Stormy Monday. And he also at the time recorded T-Bone Shuffle, which, which is also a, a fairly well-known song by him. And, you know, what's interesting actually about Call It Stormy Monday is that it is one of his few uh, slow blues hits, even though it's probably his most well-known hits. Um, and, you know, I think some people actually with Call of Story Monday would consider it one of the great, greatest blues songs of all time. Um, just because of the timing, um, it's pretty, uh, you know, considering when he released it, it's pretty ahead of its, even though it's a slow blues song, you know, it's seen as pretty ahead of its time as far as the style and just really uh, T-Bone Walker's knowledge and proficiency on guitars is pretty unique considering that, you know, the guitar, electric guitar was brand new at the time as far as, you know, playing it the style in the style that we would associate with electric blues and slow blues, you know, much more down the road. Um... And so, as I kind of mentioned, um, T-Bone Walker's style was definitely uh, in contrast to the Chicago style that was developing um, in Chicago, the electric blues style that was developing in Chicago. And so, I mean, you know, I would a lot of people will contrast these two styles as they were evolving. Um, essentially, what people are talking about is T-Bone Walker versus Muddy Waters, generally speaking. And they're talking about you know, the West Coast blues, um, West Coast or Texas electric blues included, more commonly included a horn section, which T-Bone Walker commonly included like a, a horn or a saxophone section. And Chicago blues, Muddy Waters, uh, as I said, Muddy Waters kind of took that Delta blues and shifted it into electric blues kind of directly. And so what you got is, you know, guitar and harmonica, you know, and kind of that 
that style. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, that 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 is definitely common. Was common in early Chicago blues, you know, spe- specifically if you're emulating Muddy Waters. But you know, as the, as the two genres evolved, there's a lot of crossover. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you could just take all the Chicago blues and all the West Coast blues and necessarily point out those those differences across bands because there's definitely a lot of uh, crossover and, you know, artists doing their own thing but didn't necessarily follow that, that uh, format. And I think, you know, when people talk about that sort of contrast, they're really just talking about T-Bone Walker and, and Muddy Waters more so than actually con- um, contrasting the two styles as they evolved. Because at the end of the day, I mean, with T-Bone Walker, T-Bone Walker also, you know, took a Delta Blues path as far as, you know, his early playing and early influences and just went in a, a different direction uh, with it. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that um, he, uh, you know, just didn't, he was just trying to make something completely different and completely new that was, that revolved more around the electric guitar where Muddy Waters, as I said, was kind of just continuing on that Delta Blues path and just adding electric amplification. So I think, you know, it was more of a, uh, it was less location-based and more just kind of what each artist was trying to do. And if you just look at the other artists who come out at different times, um, or, or sorry, not different times, at uh, around the same time, you know, they would have different styles, you know, that aren't necessarily reflective of West Coast blues or Chicago blues, at least when people refer to it in that way. Um, so another song that's a good example of T-Bone Walker's unique style is "Tell Me What Tell Me What's the Reason," uh, which was released in 1951. Um, T-Bone Walker, you know, continued his success through the 1950s. Um, he had started to have like numerous medical problems. Uh, he had a, an ulcer that that uh, I think occurred early in the 1950s, or maybe it was even before then. Um, and he was also in a car accident, but basically the ulcer continued to impact him till you know the end of his career. Um, but he continued to tour. He just toured less, essentially. Um, in the 1960s, he toured Europe, and it started with the first American Folk Blues Festival of 1962. And I should actually, I maybe should have included the. American Folk Blues Festival on a timeline. Um, basically, the American Folk Blues Festival was really the the first major blues festival of its time. Or, you know, it, it was just it was a big festival, but was held in Europe. It was held in different parts of Europe. And and what's interesting about that is that, you know. The blues is, you know, a core pillar of American music, and the first American, well, the first blues festival, large-scale blues festival, was held in Europe. Um, I mean, with with that said, you know, it's not like blues artists weren't touring around the U.S. and weren't receiving some um, 
recognition and success. Um, you would see some blues artists included in some jazz festivals, uh, but it is a little bit interesting that um, the first large-scale blues festival was in Europe. Um, and basically over time, uh, basically every major, most every major blues player, musician, uh, played played in uh, the, the American, American Folk Blues Festival. Uh, it was a really big deal. And it lasted for several years. So over those years, you know, um, probably anybody, any household name or any blues artist that you can probably recall um, that was, you know, at least pretty well-known uh, played over there. And some people weren't well-known. And it was big because, you know, number one, for blues musicians, it was the first time that a lot of them had toured outside of the U.S. But also for Europe and the U.K., you know, this is, for a lot of people, was the first exposure to blues, especially, you know, as far as live concert, uh, first exposure. I mean, as I talked about, a number, a handful of artists who were successful had the opportunity to to travel uh, in in uh, England and Europe, but, you know, it was a much smaller amount, and now you have a reoccurring annual blues festival that people can attend, and it was going to different parts of Europe, and so it was a, it was a big deal, um, and like I said, you know, it it is a... You know, it could have been included on the timeline as an event. Um, I think in some ways, though, it was, it's almost a standalone, not a standalone um, event, but, or series of events. But, um, you know, if you look at the timeline and just where we're progressing or headed towards, it's kind of like history, you know, the future is already being etched out, you know, and the festival doesn't necessarily impact that direction. However, obviously, you know, with all these blues artists playing in Europe during that series of period of time, um, it was right before the British invasion, and a lot of, sorry, I probably shouldn't just say it like that, it was right before when uh, all the Europe, the musicians from Europe or England, um, blues rock guys came over and were successful in the U.S., known as a British invasion, and um, so obviously, you know, it being a few years before that, it means that those seeds have already been sown and some of these guys are probably already playing blues influenced music. But with that said, you know, I know the Rolling Stones were said to be in the audience. You know, a lot of uh, guys were said to have, you know, attended these festivals and certainly got influence from them. Um, but I think as far as from the music, American music's perspective, you know, you can't deny that the uh, blues um, music British invasion blues rock invasion um, didn't impact you know the future trajectory of of like rock and roll and everything as far as it relates to black music but at the same time you know as far as where these musicians are headed you know developing you know rock and roll is already um, taking place taking shape and I'm not sure how you know, that would have impacted it. I think it would have, it definitely impacts the commercial success, the success of a lot of these other musicians, because, of course, you know, when we had the blues rock, um, British invasion, we saw a resurgence of, you know, so, you know, folk music, blues, you know, Delta blues. A lot of people just came, became like much more interested in not only only the current, but the past 
blues musicians. So that was huge, I think, in kind of gaining momentum there. And that probably uh, helped fuel rock and some of the later genres like funk. And uh, just just through awareness and exposure. So, I mean, it could have been included in the timeline. Um, I you know also understand why it wasn't. Uh, but regardless, and you know, it's something to look into because um, when you talk about um, live live performances captured from a lot of the blues greats, um, the American Folk Blues Festival is actually, you know, it's, it has some of the most well documented uh, footage of some of these musicians in their prime or you know close to their prime and. Um, especially during this time period. Um, so, so it's definitely something to look into. So back to T-Bone Walker. Um, he continued to tour after these, uh, these major um, tours in Europe and back in the U.S. Um, he toured on and off into the 1970s um, until he finally uh, passed away uh, due to complications from bronchial pneumonia in 1975. Um, but T-Bone Walker was, uh, you know, unquestionably influenced a number of later musicians. Um, you know, his he had a truly unique style. He really, you know, he really um, made electric blues his own and you know in the process really laid a template for a lot of the later blues musicians who would come along um let's see he influenced guys like lowell fulson who was a west another west coast guy uh bb king guitar slim chuck berry freddie king albert collins and you know a ton of other guys uh, in blues rock and roll and and all that um, you know, really, uh, definitely a, a key person and maybe one of the most uh, prolific musicians on the timeline so far, potentially. You know, all these guys are important and, and key, but uh, T-Bone Walker is definitely a huge one. And um, let's see, with that, uh, I think that's... Uh, think that's it for this episode um thanks for tuning in um once again to the blue lineage um you know if you haven't already definitely subscribe if you're watching on youtube you know continue to watch on uh on podcasts if you prefer to listen uh we're on most of the big podcast platforms um and you know you know i appreciate everyone uh following along especially in this early process while they're just completing this timeline um you know, to me, it's fun, but I think to, unless you're a hardcore music fan, you know, maybe, we, you know, we don't hit on uh, some topics that might be relevant to you, but, um, you know, just stay tuned. Um, I'm sure, you know, some of these artists will uh, pique your interest, hopefully, and then later on, you know, we'll get into some more uh, discussions that kind of pertain more to, uh, you know, current life, you know, what's going on in music to history today, um, what, what does the future look like? Uh, stuff like that. But uh, still have a little ways to go. Um, so please uh, 
keep uh you know tuning in to listen to, to the to the to the blue lineage uh black music black american music timeline and um until next time uh take care <laughs>